Well, as I mentioned before, um, this is my last sermon as lead pastor here. <laughs> I hope it's good. <laughs> um, but just so you know, the, the, the question is, what about the preaching? What about the preaching? That, I don't know, a month or two ago, I gave your elders a list of people who I thought would be appropriate to preach in my absence during the summer until transitional pastor comes. And they have already filled up every Sunday from now to September, I believe, with, with people that are Tommy Allen approved. <laughs> so you got that going for you. Um, also, I thought today, um, I did schedule this out on purpose, that today would be a good time to remind you that I'm just an under-shepherd. There's one real shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. So if you're following along, we're in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. So hear the word of God. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would give people hope and confidence in the fact that you, and specifically Jesus, are the good shepherd. Um, that you are the one who will never fail them or forsake them or leave them. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So we've been looking at the Gospel of John for the past 20 weeks. I think this is about the 20th sermon. I was Before I knew we were going to Spokane, I planned on doing the whole year. And the title of the series was You Will Be Found. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's on all the stuff, right? You, you Will Be Found. Because the Gospel of John is interesting. On one hand, John says, I wrote this Gospel so that you may believe in, in Jesus and in believing in Him have life. On the other hand, the Gospel of John makes it very clear that if you are going to have life in Jesus, it is because He found you, not because you found Him. And you, you will be found by Jesus. And so we've been looking today, last week we looked at the, the, one of the I Am's in which Jesus said, I'm the door for the sheep. Today, of course, we're looking at the I am where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so the question that I'm going to begin with today is, in ancient Israel, what was the most common vocation? Or what was the most common vocation in the Old Testament? Have you ever thought about that? What was the most common job that people had? Especially when you think about the big players, people's names that you know. 
Right. The easy answer is they were shepherds, almost all of them. In fact, I think all of them were shepherds. So if you think, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, remember uh, Abel, right? Adam, one of Adam's sons, he was a shepherd. He was killed by his brother who was a, just a farmer. He just raised uh, crops and things. But Abel was a shepherd. If you fast forward to Abram, what was Abram? Abram and his, his nephew Lot, what were they? Shepherds, right? And interestingly enough, uh, is, uh, Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Jacob, who would become Israel, was a shepherd. In fact, it, it, he was a really like good shepherd and, and not in the sense Jesus was, but remember he actually was great in animal husbandry. He could make the sheep turn out spotted or striped or solid colors, whatever it was, but he was a shepherd. And what's interesting, you know, remember his family, they go into Egypt and, and there are several spots in the old Testament where it says that shepherds were odious in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians hated shepherds. So of course, if God was going to call Moses to be a shepherd, isn't it like God to say, well, you don't have any experience yet, so why don't we kick you out into the desert for 40 years and learn how to be a shepherd and then go back? Because we wouldn't want you to deliver Israel from Egypt without them truly hating you. And so he does. Remember? So Moses becomes a shepherd. So you have all these shepherds that you look back on and go, wow, wow, wow. And then finally, the culminating, the, the greatest shepherd in the Old Testament, at least, is King David. Remember, we, we, we tend to miss that when we talk about David. But when you consider David's early life, I'm just going to read you a few lines from the story of David and Goliath. That in the story of David and Goliath, what happens is, remember, basically, the, the Israel is faced off against the Philistines, and the, they send out Goliath, and Israel is afraid. Goliath is this enormous giant of a man. And basically, David comes up, and he says, what's, what's all the trouble here? Why are you guys afraid? And they give him the whole thing. Oh, this guy's Goliath. He's huge. He's eight, eight, nine feet tall, blah, blah, blah. And David basically says, you know, I'll take him on. And you remember what his brother says to him? His brother, his... that's okay. She belongs to me, my, grand, my <laughs> granddaughter. That was actually amen. She knew she was hearing her grandpappy preach. So it says, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered to him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and evil of your heart, and you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? <laughs> Right, little brother. It, basically, his older brother's like, all you've been doing is taking care of those little sheep. Well, when Saul asks David, what makes you think you can take on Goliath? David reminds him of all the things that he had to do as a shepherd. And here's what David says when he, he says, what makes you think? Saul says, you're, you're not too able to go to, against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And the, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So David said that all these things happened when I was a shepherd and the Lord delivered me from all of them. And David, more, you know, it's interesting because most shepherds apparently, right? I didn't live back then, but it was an odd thing for a shepherd to be willing to risk his life for his sheep. I mean, why would you? They're replaceable, right? So if a sheep dies, the sheep dies, you replace it with another one, even if it's expensive. But if the shepherd risks his life and dies for the sheep, then the, all the sheep are going to die. And so most shepherds would not risk their lives for their sheep. David, on the other hand, risked his lives for his sheep. And in, in the process of risking his lives for his sheep, he became a hero. I mean, he risked his lives not only for his, his few little sheep, but also for Israel, his sheep. And we look at David and say, wow, what a hero. He was willing to risk his life for his sheep. He must be the most awesome ultimate shepherd there is. And the answer is no, he's not. There's a shepherd who is even greater than David. His name is Jesus. You see, David, this great shepherd, was willing to risk his life for his sheep, but Jesus, the good shepherd, is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. That Jesus, that Jesus is the one to whom all those other shepherds are pointing to. That Abel is pointing to Jesus. Abraham is pointing to Jesus. That Isaac, Jacob, all of them pointing to Jesus. David pointing to Jesus. Is there some shepherd who can come who is so great that he wouldn't just risk his life for us, but he would give his life for us? And the answer is yes. And his name is Jesus. And it had to be shocking for the religious leaders of the day to hear Jesus say that. Jesus wasn't preaching to them. He wasn't saying, there is a great shepherd. There's a good shepherd who's going to care for you. There's a good shepherd who loves you so much. He's going to lay down his life for you. He says, I am the good shepherd. It's me. I'm the one. And what are you, what are you going to do about that, right? So we're going to look at two things this morning. I, just like last week, remember I had, I had three points and I, I changed it at the last minute. Same thing this morning. I thought, I need to give myself like at least a point's worth of meandering for my last... Sunday. And so we're down, we have two points this morning. We're basically going to look today at the shepherd's love for his flock and then the shepherd's flock. Who composes the shepherd's flock, basically? So let's look again at the first verse here that we're looking at, verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, this is the kind of thing that it's like, it seems like really a minuscule detail, but it means everything to the text, is that Jesus uses an indefinite article, not an definite article. Or he uses a definite article, not an indefinite article. He says, the. In other words, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't say, I am a good shepherd. I'm not one of many good shepherds out there. You know, there's a lot of good shepherds, you know, there's, there's this guy and that guy, and I'm, I'm one of them. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the or the good shepherd. There is only one, right? And if you're familiar with the Highlander, right, there can be only one. And Jesus is it. And basically, the second thing you notice in here is the word good, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. On one hand, the word good, it's the word kalos in Greek, and it, it has about 20 different meanings. It can be used in a lot of different ways. And, you know, it could mean the noble shepherd, when he's, or it could mean the beautiful shepherd, it could mean the exquisite shepherd. But I think what Jesus is getting at here is the meaning where it, it means I'm the genuine shepherd. 
In other words, when Jesus is on the good shepherd, like when you're reading in Greek, I think what Jesus is getting at here is not, not that I'm just good, but I'm the genuine shepherd. I'm the shepherd to which all other shepherds point. I am the, the, the archetype of shepherds, if you will. Like all the other shepherds are just lesser shepherds. I'm the one to which they all point. I'm the one in which the whole Bible culminates. And, you know, to the Pharisees, basically they, what they needed to know, these religious leaders, that all the other shepherds in the Old Testament were just shadows. That the reality is now in front of you. I am the genuine shepherd. I am the one who will seek the lost. I am the one who will lay down my life. And notice what does a good shepherd do, right? He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, the, the, if you think about it, like the, the adequate shepherd, <laughs> the, a, a pretty good shepherd will risk his life for his sheep, right? And a genuine shepherd, the real shepherd, the, the genuine one, Jesus, he actually lays down his life for his sheep. And, and of course, he's talking about the cross, but there's a doctrine here that's sort of hidden in plain sight. Remember this whole chapter 10 we've been looking at, there, it's almost like John... The, the apostle was a Presbyterian, right? Because he's just laying out doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. And there's a doctrine hidden in plain sight here when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That word for there is the word uh, huper. And, and it, H, in our transliteration it would be H-U-P-E-R. And basically that is always used. It, it means very specifically on behalf of and it's always used with reference to substitution. Always. Everywhere in the Bible, it's used with reference to substitution. So this on behalf of that. And so when Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, he's not just saying that these innocent sheep are over here and some bad things are trying to get them and the good shepherd's willing to risk his life so nothing happens to the innocent sheep. I think what he's getting at here is the sheep aren't so innocent. That the sheep are actually the ones who deserve curse. The sheep are the ones who, who, because of their willfulness, because of their sinfulness, because of their brokenness, because of their choices, have been separated from God. They're separated from the, the shepherd. And so the bad things that come to get them, they sort of deserve to be gotten by them. But he says the good shepherd, the genuine shepherd, lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. In other words, the good shepherd lays his life down as a substitute for the sheep. In other words, the doctrine he's talking about here is substitutionary atonement. That's, the, that's what we would call it, right? That on one hand, by nature and by choice, we're sinners. Let me read to you Romans 5, 7 and see if it sounds familiar to you. 5, 7, and 8. The apostle says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does that verse sound familiar to you? I use it almost every week when I do the assurance of pardon. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act together, not after we showed ourselves worthy, not after we went to church enough, not after we had the right politics, not, not after we condemned wokeness or condemned whatever we condemned. He says, while we were still sinners, 
Whether you're a broken Democrat or you're a broken Republican, you need the same thing. You need someone who loves you so much, he's willing to lay down his life on your behalf. His life for your life. You've heard me say that, if you've been here for a while, a thousand times. Right? Jesus lived the life we should have lived as our substitute. He died the death we should have died as our substitute. And he rose from the dead, and when he rose from the dead, he takes us with him. Amen, right? Thank you. It only took me 17 years for that one, hallelujah, but thank you, (laughs) Presbyterian Church. That basically the, the genuine shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and Jesus contrasts that with the hired man. Notice what the hired man does. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So a couple things. is One, I think Jesus is conceding the fact that there will always be wolves. The sheep will always need to be guarded by the shepherd. The sheep will always need to be cared for by the shepherd. And notice here it says that the the wolves come and snatches and scatters. It doesn't say the wolf devours because later on Jesus says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can, can keep you, can take you away from being my sheep. But that doesn't mean that wolves won't still come. And part of the job of the shepherd is to fight wolves. And honestly... Can can we talk here after all this time? It's been hard sometimes, fighting wolves. Remember the Apostle Paul said when he left Ephesus, he tells the elders, be careful because after I leave, savage wolves will rise up from where? From among you. So part of the shepherd's job is to take on wolves. The the thing is, is whether you're an okay shepherd or whether you're an adequate shepherd or whether you're a really dedicated shepherd, you're going to fail. Fail. Right? I, I love you guys. Your elders love you. You're, all of us are shepherds. And yet, compared to Jesus, we are but hired men. That, that none of us are called to lay down our life for you. And while we might fight sometimes for you, at the end of the day, Jesus is your only hope and comfort in life and in death, not which shepherd you have standing in this pulpit. I mean, I appreciate all of the, the thanks and I appreciate all the appreciation that's been given to me, but at the end of the day, there is one person you need to depend on and his name is not Tommy Al. His name is Jesus. And if I stood up here and if that was the first time I told you that, you should doubt me when I say it. But it's not, is it? Years, decades. There is one shepherd who you can count on who will never fail you, who will never forsake you, who will never let you down, and his name is Jesus. And so, basically, I also I wrote down this morning, I want to remind you, that eventually I will be, um, someone else will be here. And first thing, don't, don't try and say, gosh, how can we replace Tommy? You can't replace me. Whether I'm good or bad, you just can't, right? Charles Spurgeon said it takes different hammers to break different rocks. And it seems that all the rocks that I am able to break have been broken. And so now a different hammer will come in. And I just wanted to remind you that he won't be a good shepherd either. 
He, he'll fail you. And, and I would encourage you as a congregation to not be consumers and say, what can I get out of this guy? What, what, can, I, what can I just squeeze out of him? What, like when I became the pastor here, within two weeks, I had a six-inch stack of paper. Everyone gave me papers and books that they said, here's what you need to read to see how the church should be. Here's what you need to be. And I didn't read any of them. Sorry if you gave me one. Because I knew what the church needed. The church needed Jesus. And as long as the next guy is giving you Jesus, support him. Don't attack him. Support him. Don't complain about him. Support him. Don't make his life hard. Continuing on. My last day, basically, um, this is a good opportunity for you to reorient yourself toward Jesus as your primary shepherd. Think about that. I'm not ending the sermon when I say that. I just think you ought to think about it. The next thing Jesus does here is he clarifies who's part of his flock. Notice what he says in verses 14 following. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it's interesting in verse 14 Jesus says, I know my sheep, my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Depending on the worldview that Jesus is using here, it completely changes the meaning, right? So if if he's speaking from a Greek perspective... To say I know something means I just have knowledge of it. I mean, I've I've been introduced to it. So, like, imagine you're in Starbucks, two guys, and you're talking, and a guy, your your wife walks in, and the guy across from you, you're Greek, and he says, you say, oh, this is my wife Judy, and he says, oh, I know her, and he says, we've met before. That's Greek. Now Hebrew, on the other hand, is a little different. Knowledge means intimacy. Knowledge, very specifically, in, in many cases, means sexual intimacy. So now you that, think that same scenario. Your wife walks in, and you say, oh, this is my wife. And the other guy across from you says, oh, I know her. Right? You punch him in the mouth. That's the kind of knowledge Jesus is talking about here. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just like my father knows me, and I know my, and I know my father. In other words, my sheep are... are I know my sheep so well that we are almost as one. Now, interestingly enough, the sheep don't know that they're sheep yet. Jesus knows who his sheep are, and he says, my sheep know me. So those who are part of Jesus' flock are those who Jesus knows, even if you don't know it yet. And that should be something also... um, to consider that basically the certainty of verse 16 is that Jesus says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. So on one hand, Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And without going into a lot of it, that's before the foundation of the world. Jesus says that later on. That before the foundation of the world, Jesus knows who his sheep are. And not only that, he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And I want you to consider, again, very carefully the language that Jesus uses here and the certainty with which Jesus uses that language. 
He doesn't, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, I have other sheep and they're not of this fold. I'm going to try to bring them in. They might listen to my voice and there might be one flock and there could be one shepherd. We'll see how it pans out. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, I must bring them in. They will listen and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That Jesus is certain that there are people. He's talking to Israel and so he's now talking about the whole world, the, the rest of the, the world, the Gentiles. And he says, I, th- there's other sheep, there are other sheep and I must bring them in and they will listen. That it's going to, to happen. And what's to what end so they would have one flock and one shepherd drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all under the same shepherd. And what I wanted to remind you of is that you and I are the means by which Jesus does that. That, that you and I are the means. We, in other words, we don't preach and evangelize so that people will belong to Jesus. We preach and evangelize because people belong to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. I mean, think about that. If, if you've ever heard me beat on any drum since I've been here, there, there are people out here, there are people out in our community who are part of our family. They just don't know it yet. If you had family members that, that you knew they were part of your family, but they didn't know it, and they were just going off and harming themselves, would you not pursue them? That is exactly what is happening with the gospel, right? That there are people out there who don't know that they are part of this family, but they need to know. And the way that they will know is if and when we tell them. We have family members out there. That is the end to which we preach this. I mean, remember in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul, God calls him to go to Corinth. And Paul's afraid of going to Corinth because everywhere Paul went, he got beaten. And he was afraid. And God says what to him? Do not be afraid, for I have many people in this city. Paul hadn't been there yet. I know, that's the point. Paul, you just go, you preach the gospel, and those that are mine, I will draw out. Basically, the motivation that Paul had is that the sheep were already there. I mean, part, I think part of the reason the church doesn't do evangelism, that we don't reach out, is because we don't really understand the gospel. Right? We, our job is not to go out into the community and try to persuade each and one, every one of our neighbors like, here's all the apologetic information. Here's all the reasons you should believe in the resurrection. Here's all this. Here's all. That's not our job. Our job is finding family members. Our job is letting them know that there is a father who loves them so much that he's willing to give his son. There's a shepherd who loved them so much he's willing to lay down his life. And if they are effectually called, remember a few sermons ago, they will hear the shepherd's voice and they will come. You don't have to argue people into the kingdom. That never, ever works. The encouragement that Paul gave to Timothy, let me read you that. And this is important because this is the reason I became a pastor here in the first place. So Paul's getting toward the end of his life, and Timothy's having a hard time as a pastor. People are are treating him poorly. He's got health issues, all these kinds of things. And Paul gives him this advice in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with the eternal glory. 
for the, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So why did Paul endure all these things? He didn't do it because some people might possibly come to know Jesus someday. He did it because he knew that God had chosen a people for himself and that his job as a minister of the gospel was just to figure out who that was by preaching to them. And I'll be honest with you. I got into ministry when I was, I don't know how old, 25, 26. Judy and I planted a church and it was pretty successful by human standards. And then we were crushed. I mean, the church just crushed us. I left the ministry. You know that. I became a drug rep at Eli Lilly, which that was like awesome because I got to share the gospel with every psychiatrist on the West Coast practically. But then we started coming to church here and I started teaching classes. And I remember on the first day I was going to teach here, Judy said, are you nervous about teaching? It's been a couple of years. And I said to her, the only thing I'm worried about is losing my anonymity. Because not being a pastor means I don't have to suffer all the crap that happens in church. As soon as I open my mouth, though, oof. And what do you know? I opened my mouth, and I ended up being the senior pastor. I hate being right all the time. (laughs) And at some point, they said, will you come on staff to help? And I remember driving down 167, thinking about this. Should I subject myself to that again? And on one shoulder was like the, the Lily Tommy with like a tie and a white shirt, and he was looking good and feeling good. And he said, don't do it. Don't do it. Why would you do that again? And on this shoulder was the one you see now. And he all he said was Tommy remember the Apostle Paul I'm willing to suffer all things for the sake of the elect this guy won by the way many if not most of my teammates at Lilly became Christians in fact remember when we dug dug when we built this sanctuary we we put rocks in the sanctuary and wrote people's names on them that we wanted to be, you know, like, we all want this person to be saved, that person to be saved. I took a wheelbarrow. And I told Judy, I'm going to walk all these people through here. And I have. That's why I stayed. People all the time said, why do you stay? It's because I was willing to suffer for them. And it's not like I'm some martyr. You can ask my wife, like, oh, yeah, he suffers, and then he comes home and complains about it. But the fact is, is all of us are called to suffer all things for the elect. We walk into church like we're consumers and say, what's a good church? Where's the music good? Is the preaching good? Is this and that? Change your orientation and say, am I willing to suffer all things for the sake of the elect? Am I willing to suffer a preacher that's not as good as I think is the last one was for the sake of the elect? Am I willing to suffer music that's not my favorite for the sake of the elect? Are you willing to suffer anything for the sake of the elect? Paul says, I'm willing to suffer all things for the sake of the elect. Let me finish with this last thing. And just, it's Jesus' confidence that I, I love here, where he says at the end, 
He says, no one takes it, my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. That don't forget at the end of the day that Jesus was a ranger. What do I mean by that? That since the French and Indian War, the motto of U.S. Army Rangers has been sua sponte. And what that means is, I volunteer. Did you notice what Jesus said? He says, you don't take my life from me. I volunteer it. I lay it down of my own accord. I remember years ago in Atlanta, there was a, a woman who's, who's father was a Marine Corps colonel. He was retired. He was like a hardened atheist. And he, she wanted him to talk to a pastor. And he's like, I'm not going to talk to any pastors. And she's like, well, we have one pastor who's a ranger. And he's like, mm, okay, I'll talk to him. And he and I became good friends. And as he was in the hospital, he eventually became a Christian. And what's interesting is we would, we would argue and about whether or not Jesus was a ranger or Jesus would be a Marine. And he would say, Jesus, Jesus is definitely going to be a Marine because he could walk on water. I'd say, no, he's definitely a ranger because you couldn't kill him. <laughs> or you could kill him, but he's going to come back and get you in the end. And what was interesting to me always is I remember I did his funeral and I made the case that Jesus was both. Jesus was a ranger, sua sponte. He volunteered for it. But he was always also Marine, semper fi. He was always faithful. And he will be faithful to you. No matter what you're thinking now, no matter what you're feeling, what emotions you have, remind yourself that Jesus is going to be faithful in and through whatever comes next. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you, um, you would just... Uh, I don't pray that you would take care of me and my family and our, this church and, and our church as we go forward and as they send me, but I pray that you would bring to mind that that is what you promised us that you bring to mind, that you reminded us you would never fail us or forsake us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.